Thank you very much. Good morning. And if you're watching somewhere else, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is when you're watching. During the summer, I received a phone call that led me to find myself sitting in offices not far from here. They are the offices of a national sporting association. So I can't tell you who it is, but it's at a place called Windsor Park. And the people there are involved in the world of soccer, football. And I had to explain to them that I know nothing about football, and I care even less. I, in my day job, I'm a a lawyer. I, I advise people, and I act in courts. I'm an advocate. And I was brought in because they had a problem with the principle of sporting merit. Built into the system is the idea that if you perform well, uh, you get rewards. And if your team is the team that succeeds through all its competitions, then there are rewards. And it's called the principle of sporting merit, and it's in their rules. The problem is, because of the pandemic, they weren't able to finish all the games. And so there were a, a number of problems and complications that were generated by that. What's to happen? The principle of sporting merit overtaken by the pandemic. What now? Same problem arises in education. You might remember the terrible stress that many of our young people faced in the summer months whenever the problem was that the the merit that they had been wishing to demonstrate was not given an opportunity to, to be marked and represented through exams. And in fact, time and time again throughout our culture, we are living in a performance culture where your performance decides the rewards, decides the outcome, the merit principle. And it's all through our society, in education, in sport, even sometimes in our homes, and even sometimes in religions. They operate on the merit principle that if you live in a certain way and come up to a certain standard, then the religion rewards you, or the gods, or whoever it is in charge of the rewards, gives you rewards based on your merit. And that's a very common idea throughout our world. But it's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is built on a grace principle, not the merit principle. And this gospel principle of grace, which is favor from God to us, not only that we don't deserve it, but it's the very opposite of what we do deserve. And because it's so unusual and countercultural, it can be easily misunderstood and, and, and easily distorted. But it is distinctive. Philip Yancey in his book, What's Amazing About Grace, tells the story of C.S. Lewis, who was at a conference, according to Yancey, of people discussing comparative religion. And they were trying to find the distinctive thing about different religions, and they came to Christianity. And what is the distinctive thing about the Christian faith? And they were debating it, and Lewis said, it's easy, it's grace. It is distinctive, and it's unique to the Christian gospel. But it can so easily be misunderstood and distorted. It was Bonhoeffer who spoke of cheap grace, said this, cheap grace, which is distorting it, 
is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And that's the challenge that we're looking at in Romans 6 in our Bible reading now, which we're coming to, Romans 6, verses 15 to 23. It's the the challenge of understanding grace properly. There are some, and and they, they hear this message and they say, well, let's work this out logically. If God is good and God has graciously given his son to be the atoning sacrifice once forever, no need to repeat it, no need to supplement it, and it covers all my sin, past, present, and future. The whole of my life is covered. If that's what the message means, well, now that I'm covered by that, surely I can have an occasional night off, and I can have a little bit of indulgence and sin just a little bit because God is going to forgive me. That's his job. And Paul says, no, if that's what you think, you have distorted it, you've misunderstood it, you have not understood correctly at all. We're reading from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. But I want to give you a trigger warning. Paul, in this short section, uses the metaphor of slavery. Now, especially this year with all that's gone on on both sides of the Atlantic, that's already a word that has a lot of baggage. And when we hear the word slavery, many of us think of the the wickedness and the evil that was represented by American slavery, which was based on a racial characteristic. People of a certain racial background were taken and abused as slaves. And many of us are colored by that background and think of slavery meaning that. When Paul's speaking of slavery, he's not speaking of that sort of slavery at all. He's speaking of slavery in the Roman world, where on occasions people could volunteer to become slaves. It happened because of dire financial or economic crisis that they found there was no bankruptcy system, and so the only way out was to go and voluntarily enslave yourself and become a slave. That's the culture. That's the metaphor that he's borrowing. And so we need to understand that as we come to the text. And his logic is very simple. Once you've done that, once you have volunteered to the slave master, then you are, surprise, surprise, enslaved. And you must obey. Your freedom is lost. So let's come to the text. Romans 6, verse 15, Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, there's the idea of voluntarily surrendering yourself to someone, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. 
In other words, that's Paul's explanation of this metaphor. It's not a perfect metaphor, but I'm using it because you understand what voluntary slavery means. For just as you, he says, once presented your members, that's your body, all your resources, you once presented yourselves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Time is short, so let me try and unpack this in the time I've got as efficiently as I can. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying there is no freedom. Everyone's got a boss. Everyone serves someone. Bob Dylan once captured it in a song. Everyone's got to serve someone. And what he says is that as you come into life and into maturity and into the world you discover that you are born into a tyranny of self. A tyranny of sin. We're naturally self-servers. And in this metaphor, he calls us slaves to sin. We're committed to it. Verse 16. It's our natural habitat. It's our accustomed state that we cannot escape. That's where we all start. And he says that it is both progressive and it's deadly. It's progressive. As we pursue life without God, disregarding God and his standards, which is what he means by lawlessness, when you're living for self and under the tyranny of sin, you don't have any respect for God's standards. You're living for another agenda. And so he says your life is marked by breaking God's standards, by lawlessness, not knowing or caring whether God has said anything to the contrary. You pursue your own agenda under this tyranny of the self. And he says it not only leads to lawlessness, but it is marked by increasing impurity. Verse 19. You go deeper and deeper, further and further. It's progressive. Sin will take you further than you ever expected to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will require more by payment than you ever wish to pay. And he says, looking back on this now, that you're under new management, that you've moved into God's kingdom, you have shame for how you used to live. But at the time, you didn't have shame. At the time, this is what you know. This is what you do. This is who you are. And you think you're free. Free to do what you want. And that, for many people, is the definition of freedom, isn't it? I'm free to be who I think I am. 
to be what I want to be, to decide and define who I am, the principle of autonomy. Paul's saying, really, it's a delusion. There are only two masters, yourself and sin and this tyranny that traps you, or else God. He says it's not only progressive, it's deadly, he says. Verse 21. The idea of death is rich in the Bible. And it means a number of things. But here Paul's emphasis is on this. That as you pursue this tyranny of the self, it always results in dead ends. It never gets you where you want to be. It never results in the satisfaction you're craving for. How can it? It ends in relational dead ends. So those relationships you pursue with such enthusiasm don't ever give the fulfillment that you you expect. It ends in spiritual death, according to the Bible. You're cut off from God and not in relationship with Him. And it ends in physical death. We're all taken out in a box. That's how it ends. And so Paul's message is very simple, that if you are in the tyranny of self and of sin, as he describes it, if you're in slavery to that, it gets more and more progressively strong in your life. It grips you and ends up not only in a physical death, but before that in relational death, and more importantly still in a spiritual death where you have no relationship with the God who made you and who wants you to be free. And then he says, if that's your natural state, you people in Rome that I'm writing to, you're, you're not those people anymore. You're under new management. He says in verse 17, something happened to you. And the way he describes it is a very interesting and unusual way. I don't know if you've ever heard someone giving their Christian testimony and saying how they used to be this, and then they met the risen Lord Jesus, and they came to recognize that he is the Son of God who loved them and gave himself for them, and they surrendered in faith, and they were transformed. I'm sure you've heard testimonies, as we call them, of that. But how many of you ever heard describe their testimony, their conversion, this way? That I became obedient to the teaching. What are you talking about, Paul? In verse 17, he's describing... Christian conversion. He's saying that you people who are now followers of the Lord Jesus in Rome, to whom I'm writing, you became obedient to the teaching. And what that means is this, that there is a God who is the source of truth, the source of knowledge, and that God has communicated. He's a speaking God. He's not only the God who created the universe, who sustains it and gives it meaning, but he's also the God who speaks into it. And he has given us propositional truth. And he has told us that there would come one day a magnificent person, the Messiah. And the Messiah would die an atoning death who would rise again and be exalted. All of that was prophesied. It was foretold. And the New Testament is the follow-up and saying, all that you were expecting to happen has happened in real space-time history. And now it's time to accept it or not to become obedient to it or not, to recognize that this is the very truth of the universe and become obedient 
so that the message can be presented as God tells all people everywhere to repent and trust the Lord Jesus. That's the universal call. And Paul says, those who have recognized that and repented, they become obedient and then they follow him. So that's what happened. They became obedient to the truth, to the teaching. Well, so what? Well, look at verse 17, he says. The result of that is that you come under new management. You change the master. It used to be self, sin, that ends in death. And now it's God is your master. That's the logic. His position is very simple. It's a binary. There's only God or sin. There's only God or self. There is no third possible master. You're either serving God or you're serving yourself. And he says in verse 17, you've been set free from that tyranny to self. And not only that, but you've been brought in and now you are, verse 22, slaves of God. Is that on your passport? Slave of God. It's how Paul opens this letter. It's how he introduces himself in the very first verse of the first chapter. He is not ashamed, he's honored to be described as someone who now owes his total allegiance and obedience in every part of his life to the God of heaven. He's saying, I am enslaved to God and now I owe him total, radical, exclusive obedience. The Lord Jesus taught the same thing, didn't he? Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You either serve money or God. You either serve God or there only is yourself. And so now that you have become a slave, a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus, you owe him total obedience. And so what now Paul does is he works out the logic of that, this shift of management. And he says, just as slavery was dynamic, getting worse and worse and worse, verse 19, now those who are under God's management are getting steadily better and better and better. Just as sin leads to greater and greater corruption, when you're under the management of God, it leads to greater Christ-likeness, greater holiness, greater adherence to his standards. And that's why he says, be who you are. Verse 23, you used to be invested in pursuing yourself. Now, you're called upon to follow through on who you are and to invest in your new lifestyle that leads to eternal life in Christ. This phrase, eternal life, used to trouble me when I was a boy. I used to think it was a... Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes school days could be very long. And a 45-minute class in school seemed to be like an awfully long time. And the idea that we were going to be in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and it just seemed like a negative thing, an unending period. Is that attractive? But of course, what eternal life is about is not so much its unending quality. It, it, it is unending. But it's the quality of life that is the big point in the phrase. If God is eternal, he has no beginning, he has no end. He is good and only good and has all the delights of glory waiting for us. And we are in a relationship that starts with him now. 
It's a relationship that will never end because he doesn't end. And he's brought us into a relationship that doesn't end, even if death interrupts so that we go through the portal of death in order to come into that fullness of eternal life. So he says, there is this progression. Now pursue this lifestyle that God has called you into. The daily reminder is to remember who you are. Last week, Danny Crooks gave you a a wonderful illustration of a a woman who was trafficked through slavery and ended up becoming the wife of the owner of a great business. And she now had citizenship in the country. She now had great wealth and resources. And following that wonderful analogy through, what Paul is saying is, imagine that girl getting a phone call from her former trafficker and saying, I want you to report on Friday afternoon, I've got something for you to do for me. A task, a job, especially for you. And she leaves and goes and behaves in line with who she used to be. You'd say there's something wrong with her, wouldn't you? There's something fundamentally missing in her understanding of who she is. She's acting out of character. She has forgotten the change that has been brought about in her life. And that's Paul's point. It would be absurd to the point of tragic for her to do that. This is how the message translation, not that I commend it, but this is how it captures this last passage in the text. Verse 22. Now that you've been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. This is how message puts it. Now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin to tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole healed, put together life you have right now with more and more of life on the way. If you work hard for sin your whole life, your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. The opposite of cheap grace is costly grace. This is how Bonhoeffer describes this principle that we're discussing. Grace is costly. It calls us to follow And it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a person his whole life. And it's grace because it gives a person the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And this is the grace that he has called us into. 
to go out and to share this liberating, joyous, magnificent truth that God receives us and sustains us and eventually will take us into that realm of unending bliss on the basis of the grace principle. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we bow before you. We recognize that we could never merit acceptance with you. We could never maintain relationship with you. We could never deserve any reward of any benefit from you, but you have dealt with us magnificently through the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus, for whom we give you thanks. And we thank you that you have now called us to be agents of grace in a broken, hurting, needy world. Help us in the power of your Spirit to be faithful to you, not to be deluded by cheap grace, but to be advocates of this costly grace that has won and transformed us. For the glory of your Son we ask it. Amen.